Good morning. Got to be honest with you, at about the first chorus of the first song, I was about to either say, we're going to sing all morning long, or I'm just going to stop everything and I'm going to go preach right now. Man, those songs get me fired up. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Oh my goodness. God is so good to us. So kind to us, even right now, and allowing us to open his word and the joy of freedom to enjoy him, to make much of the Lord Jesus. This is a blessing and a privilege, and I pray that we would not waste a moment this morning. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we ask that the words of that last song would ring true in our hearts. I'd rather have Jesus. Father, whether we recognize it fully or not, we have come this morning needing to hear your word. Needing to be transformed by it. So Father, by your spirit, we boldly ask that you would do a great work in us. Praise you for the great privilege we have to open your word together, to learn of it together, to bask in the glory of it together. Father, help us make much of Jesus, not ourselves, not riches, not lands, not positions, not possessions. Help us make much of Jesus as we aim to listen well, as we aim to make much of him in our hearts and in this broken, broken world. Pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll be returning to the book of 1 John, so I invite you to open there. We'll be in the second chapter, reading the verses beginning at 15, going through 17. And we come to a passage this morning in which we have an imperative from the Apostle John, a command which is somewhat rare in John's letters. And because of its rarity, we must take acute notice of what is being communicated to us this morning. And before we stand and read 1 John 2, 15-17, let us just be reminded of the context up until that very point. John has already articulated to us both the beauty of Christ's eternality and his majesty. He has shown us the joyful fellowship that is to be experienced by faith in him and in him alone. He has shown to us already the incompatibility, the impossibility of God's purity coexisting with man's love affair with habitual darkness. After all, God is light. He has informed us of the irreconcilable partnership of lies and truth. He's encouraged us all over the place by painting in our minds a wonderful tapestry of Christ's role in meriting our righteousness and ongoing restoration with the Father when we commit acts of sin against him. 
All these things are happening in the context where lies about the nature and work of Christ are abounding. They're increasing. They're spreading. So John comes on the scene, and what he does is he wraps his pastoral arms around those he loves dearly. And he expresses his confidence in their belonging to Christ. He offers words of encouragement to the young and to the old, to the seasoned saint and to the greenhorn. He gives a taste of what he explicitly later on says in his letter, namely that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world by faith. By faith. And now he brings his beloved children and us this morning to the crossroads of a serious warning, a serious but gracious warning, a needful command even for believers now. Centuries and centuries have passed in which this, this billboard, this monument of a letter has stood upright, proclaiming to each generation what he writes at the very end of his letter, keep yourselves from idols. So may we heed this message anew this morning. Please stand and let us read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. What we have before us is not at all a difficult passage to interpret. There's very little variation in English translations from the Greek text. The difficulty here is getting this message into our hearts and getting it out into life and living in light of what we learn consistently. Speaking of the heart, I'd like to borrow Wayne Mack's definition, a godly biblical counselor. He says, we're referring here, when we speak of the heart, we're talking about the mission control center of a person's life. One seminary professor adds a little color to that. He says, though scripture speaks of the heart as a unified object, it describes it three-dimensionally. The heart is alive, it's dynamic, functioning in a multifaceted way. It responds cognitively through rational processes based on knowledge and beliefs. It responds effectively through a framework of desires and emotions. It also responds volitionally through a series of choices reflecting the willful commitments of our inner man, of our heart. In other words, it's the command center through which we process all of life in terms of thinking and feeling and doing. The problem here is, the problem is, man's heart is naturally bent toward wickedness. The natural heart of man is deceitful. 
It has the inclination toward forsaking God and establishing its own system for living in which the creator of that system is God. Therefore, our hearts, as the Proverbs tell us, they need to be guarded above all else. The Proverbs would tell us they need to be directed in the right way, in the way of holiness. The problem there is that God must remove our stony hearts and give us hearts responsive, truly responsive to his character and to his commands. And then when he does, there's that time span in which our hearts and our actions are being shaped into Christ's holiness and his conduct. That's our sanctification. And that spans from the time we are born again until we are glorified. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. But here this morning in our text, we want to begin to excavate what the Lord has for us in these few verses. And your first point this morning, our first point, is love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. Love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. We read in the first half of verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the what. This is the command, the imperative. This, the why comes then in the second half of the verse in which we read, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, that adds a lot of weight to the command. It's the rationale behind that command. And because this is such a serious matter, we need to define some of the terms that John is using to make sure that we understand correctly what he is saying to his original audience and to us. So when John here speaks of love, he's speaking of taking wrong pleasure in, to set supreme affections upon something, to treasure something above all. All else. That's what he means by love. When he connects that with world, he's talking about this realm of earthly endowments and advantages. This is not the same sense in which he uses the word world in John 3.16. We have to keep it in context. We need to focus on what he would have us focus on. John, in essence, is telling us, do not think within yourself to set inordinate affections on the gifts and the gains of this world. Don't do it. Because if one does this, if one does this, meaning if one is habitually characterized by love for the world, then that person lacks love of the Father. That person does not belong to the Father. Now some folks wrestle with what is actually meant by that phrase, love of the Father, at the end of verse 15, if you see it there. Does John mean that the Father's love does not exist in them, or that they have no love for the Father? Well, the answer is yes. Yes to both. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John would have us understand that we love because God first loved us. Our love for God is generated by his love for us. So, no love of God toward us, no love of us toward God. 
You cannot claim to do anything with that which you don't have. The aim in John's mind is to show that God is to be supreme. He is to be the supreme object in all of our thoughts, all of our affections, all of our intentions, our purposes, our doing, all of that. He is to be supreme. We were created in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, unto good works. So our actions, our behavior, that just validates or invalidates our claim to have an interest in the Father. That's the immediate payoff of this verse. The bones of our understanding. We need to understand that this letter wasn't given in bite-sized portions and dispersed in small chunks. It would do us well to add some muscle mass to what is going on in John's mind in terms of directing his dear children away from loving the world. And I would encourage you this week to open up to 1 John. Five chapters, you could read it over and over and over and over. Squeeze the spiritual pulp out of that thing. The more and more you investigate First John and you start extracting uh, John's motives in helping people stay away from loving the world, here are some of the things you would pick up on spanning from verse, or chapter 3 rather, through the end of the letter. He says, stay away from the world because the world doesn't acknowledge and worship God as God. Stay away from it. That should be enough. That should be enough. But he goes on and he adds layer upon layer of reasoning why we need to stay away from the world. The world does not acknowledge and worship God as God. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 3 that Christ came to take away sin. So don't be entangled in a world full of it. Stay away from the world. In verse 13, the world despises people who follow God. Stay away from the world. He goes on in chapter 4 to tell us that false prophets have infiltrated the world. Stay away. The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. Stay away from loving the world. In chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, don't love it. And at the very end, point blank, it's just commanded. Keep yourselves from idols. Do not love this world or the things in it. Believers cannot love God and establish the things of this world as their treasure. It doesn't happen. And we saw that in the passage that Pastor Michael read for us this morning in which Jesus says, no one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one And despise the other. The believer's allegiance to the Lord must not be divided. It cannot be. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this. If Christ be anything, he must be everything. If Christ be anything, he must be everything. Here at Providence, we love the song. We sing it from time to time. Give me Jesus. You know the lyrics? Take the world, but give me. Say it. 
All its joys are but a name. But his love abides through eternal years the same. You know that song's not original to Sovereign Grace music. Yes, they wrote the modern melody. But that song is original to Fanny Crosby. And here's what inspired that song. She had a neighbor in which she expressed some holy annoyance with, if that's even a thing. She got tired of this guy talking about his position in life. She was entertaining him for the purpose of sharing the gospel with him. But she just got tired of him saying, if I just had more money, if I just had this position, if I were just of this status, then I would really make something of myself in this world. And she looked at him and said, you can have the world. Give me Jesus. Hallelujah for that boldness, no matter what the motive was. But I'm afraid that functionally we tend to sing in our hearts this lyric. Give the world and give me Jesus. Thomas Chalmers, in his dynamic sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, he said this, The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, not merely, but in a state of enmity and so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same heart. Do we understand that, church? Right out of the gate, John gives us this meaty command in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in it. The question here is what might that world be to you? What are the things in this world that you're so easily enamored by. Here's what I want you to do. If you have a piece of paper and a pen, write down whatever comes to mind when I ask that question again. What might the world be to you? In your pursuit to love Jesus more and the world less, what is that thing that tends to get the upper hand more often than not? Write it down. We're going to come back to it later. And what John does next in our passage, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is just absolutely genius and provides our second point this morning. Love for the world is a wasted endeavor. Love for the world is a wasted endeavor. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Notice the language there. All that is in the world. These things are pursued either by desire or pride. Desire or pride. This is what the world, lying in the power of the evil one, offers. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what you get. 
in the first two terms, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes, these things speak to greed, to covetousness, longing eagerly to acquire something. We're speaking of that strong desire. The second term, the pride of life which is the vaunting of life, the boasting in possessions, the boasting in a certain lifestyle. All that speaks to the pride of having in possession what was once, that which was once coveted. That's pride. Connecting John's writing to Chalmers' treatment of love for the world, Chalmers tells us love may be regarded in two different conditions. The first is when its object is at a distance. Then it becomes love and a state of desire. The second is, when its object is in possession, it becomes love and a state of indulgence. So what we need to see here is that man's lust for happiness really comes in two basic forms. What I want and what I have what I want, what I have. Let's spend just a few minutes unpacking these phrases. Desires of the flesh, what are we talking about? We're talking about the lust, the cravings, these ungodly passions of the flesh. This is the first of two, what I want, longings or cravings. Quite simply, it just highlights the sensuous nature of man, in particular, an ungodly sexual appetite. It's incredible how highly sensuous our culture is. You can just fill in the blanks. It's incredible. It was the same, though, in Peter's day, in Paul's day, in Mark's day. In fact, in many of the New Testament letters, when it came time to apply the doctrine, the chapters of doctrine that have already uh, been issued, he these Biblical writers go into addressing a sinful sexual appetite. They want to expose that, and they command it to be put to death. 1 Peter 2, 11 tells us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mark chapter 4, verse 19, we're in the parable of the soils here. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches... And the desire for other things enter in. They choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's the desires of the flesh. What about the desires of the eyes? What are we talking about there? Well, the desires of the eyes, that's really like an inner man key that starts the engine of our hearts. It moves us to consider how we feel about what we want. We might speak within ourselves, my joy is bound up in blank. That's where my joy is. It moves us to consider how we think about what we're coveting. 
we might say within ourselves, well, I deserve to have blank. Moves us to consider how we intend to acquire what we want. We might speak within ourselves. I will do blank to get blank. Or I will do blank if I don't get blank. The desires of the eyes. That's that key. It starts the engine of our hearts. Moves us to consider all of these things. Lust comes in all different types. It's not just a sexual issue. We can lust after or crave after power, control, security. We can lust after or crave riches or leisure, hobbies. We can even lust after vengeance. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were... Once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Various passions and pleasures. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions, plural, of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature were called children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All throughout those two passages, yeah, we see what we were caught up in. But what a sweet word to those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. What a sweet word is the word were. Some were, some of you. You were dead. You were foolish. We were those who not only just got caught up time to time in sinful pleasure, we fervently pursued sinful pleasure. We were those enslaved to various passions. So we must not ever forget this good news. But God. But God. What about but God? Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being what? Rich in mercy. Not selective. Rich. Abundant. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And being made alive together with Christ, by grace, through faith, we now have claim to this, this precious truth which we get from Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's good news. We have spirit-enabling power to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we don't have to let sin reign in our mortal body to make it obey its passions. Instead, we have God's grace. 
the Spirit's power to do what Romans 13, 14 tells us. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, through Christ, the spiritually dead are brought to life. And through Christ, we are set free from sin. And through Christ, we shout, sin has no dominion over us. Did you hear that? Sin has no dominion over us. I rejoice in that. Because I understand the proclivity of my heart. And how my heart is naturally bent toward the things of this world. Self-seeking and self-pleasure. I rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how could we dare, if we belong to him, how could we dare return to a proverbial Egypt to enlist as slaves to sin rather than slaves to the sinless Lamb of God? How could we do it? The truth is, some here this morning have no claim to the term were. Rather, this person can only possess the term are. Spiritual deadness, you would have to say that you are enslaved to the world. I love the world. You love the world, you love the things in it. You would fall under that John 8.44 umbrella that you are just willing to do the wicked ones, the devil's desires. You have subscribed to the pattern of Romans 1.25 which talks about exchanging the truth about God into a lie and worshiping creation rather than the creator. You are groping in darkness after the world hoping to find joy, happiness, fulfillment. It's not there, but if this is you, I hope you understand this morning the predicament that you're in. You stand condemned, separated from God, positioned under his wrath to come. Second Thessalonians tells us, chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God's holiness demands he not be in the presence of sin, but God, but God, but God. Amen? He sent his son to live the perfect life we could never live. Never. He sent his son to die the criminal's death every one of us justly deserves. He was crucified on a horrid criminal's cross though he never committed sin. He was raised on the third day, signaling his authority over all and power to forgive sin. He earned for the repentant sinner eternal life and blessings that rightly and solely belong to him. So how do you go from being an are some of you to a were some of you? You repent. 
You believe. Turn away from your sin. Your forsaking of God's authority over you. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust his work to be sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin and bring you into a right relationship with the Father. Repent and believe. Do not let the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke out the word you are hearing right now. Repent and believe. But our passage this morning in 1 John is primarily concerned with the drifting of believers into troubled waters, into a place of positioning the world above God, thus making the world and the things in it that which is to be treasured. Sometimes we actually get what we want. Sometimes we actually get what we want. And so that there is in this a danger toward the pride of life. That's what the middle of chapter 2, verse 16 tells us. The pride of life. Though it belongs to the world, we can too easily, and often we do, we boast in the things that we have. We boast in our positions. We boast in our possessions. And we boast in our influence. This was the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Let me start reading at verse 29. Daniel 4, verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Ooh, that's vaunting. That's boasting. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. What about Jesus' treatment of the religious hypocrites in Matthew chapter 6, saying, when you pray, talking to the disciples, you must not be like the hypocrites. Why? Well, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. That's what they want. Pride of life. If we go back to 1 John and look at chapter 3, verse 17, We read these words. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Instead of using what we have and seeing it as a gift from God to provide for the needs of others, we might just use what we have to make others treasure us and highly esteem us. That's loving the world. That's the pride of life, so it would do us good to remind ourselves and to ask ourselves the same questions Paul presented to the Corinthian church. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? To do so would keep us humble, grateful for whatever whatever the Lord has bestowed upon us. After all, they are his gifts. It's not about 
possession. It's about pride. It's not about possession. It's about the pride. And so John writes in 2.16 that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride in life, these are products of a fallen world, not holy endowments from the Father. And so to pursue such things, it's just a wasted endeavor. Namely, because the pursuit of such things is not endorsed by the Father. And it's a wasted endeavor because what we read in verse 17. Look there with me. The world is passing away along with its desires. The world is passing away along with its desires. All that glitters is not gold. And even if it were, it would pass away with the rest of the world. So don't for a moment subscribe to the idea of earthly permanence. This world is so frail. This world is so fallen. We, we are so feeble that we often fail to recognize that even the act of lusting after the things of the world, that's fading. So if we worship what is created, we will become like those created things. We will perish like those created things, but with a worse outcome. Take to heart these words from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness? And godliness. The works done on earth, they will be exposed. And if they are exposed, they will be judged. Every sinful desire of the flesh, every sinful desire of the eyes, every sinful boast in possessions and positions. So let us just not get entangled and spend our lives entertaining a wasted endeavor. Rather, let us understand and implement our last point this morning, which is this. Love for God is an invaluable pursuit. Love for God is an invaluable pursuit. Look with me at the second half of verse 17. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abides forever. Literally, to the age. That's just an idiom meaning forever. Forever and ever. The one doing God's will has life everlasting. There's a little play on words here. In verse 16, we are instructed not to desire the things of the flesh or the eyes, the boasts and stuff and status. But here in verse 17, we are told to do, we are told to desire and do the desires of God. The will of God. We've already seen that the will of God defined in John's letter is to believe truth, walk in the light, believe Jesus, walk in his footsteps. And in the three verses we're looking at this morning, doing the will of God involves pumping out love for the world and flooding our hearts with love for God. Pumping out love for the world and flooding our souls with love for God. This is what we're after, cutting off 
are needless entanglements with the world. I'm not speaking of our responsibilities as God's stewards. I'm not talking about becoming recluse, and I'm not even denying the joy of certain gifts and activities, hobbies, and leisures. But what we're after is cutting off this this deep-rooted love affair with the world and cultivating deep-rooted affection for Jesus. When this is evident, we have confidence that the sweetness of eternity awaits us. And don't forget, it's a pursuit, the one doing the will of God. True faith knows nothing of stagnation. True faith knows its need to be doers of the word, pursuers of God, soaking up all the joy that is to be found in Jesus so that we can ring it out in praise here and now and for all eternity unto his glory. This is why we keep the gospel before us every time we meet here at Providence. This is why we pray the gospel, we sing the gospel, we preach the gospel. Going back to Thomas Chalmers, he writes, In the gospel, do we so behold God as that we may love God? If the heart be without God, then the world will have the ascendancy. It is God apprehended by the believer as God in Christ who alone can remove the world from this position. God alone. Here's the thing. We tend to make some mistakes when it comes to pumping out the world and aiming for gospel-shaped lives. I'm sure there are many. Here are four. First thing we tend to do is we just call it quits. It's just too hard. I can't seem to get any traction with this whole concept of squelching the world. So I'm just going to throw my hands up, throw in the towel, I'm done. But by doing that, we forget what John has already told his audience and tells us back in verses 1 and 2 of the second chapter. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, oh, blessed words, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't call it quits. Don't throw your hands up. He really is faithful and just to forgive when we go to him, confessing our love for the world. It's the first thing we might tend toward. Second thing is, perhaps we attempt to do penance. When we run away from his faithful forgiveness and his restoration, we tend to compensate for wrongdoing, something tangible that we can do to ease our conscience. That's a man-made system and knows nothing of God's grace. Perhaps we say things like this, well, I pursued the flesh in this way, so now, to compensate, I need to read twice as many Bible passages today. Or, I boasted in my status in this way, so now, I think I'll be all right if I put a little extra in the offering plate this Sunday. Grace doesn't call us to that. Grace calls us to our knees to repent, to receive mercy. Grace calls us to see afresh the perfect work of Christ for completely imperfect people. That's grace. The third thing 
We tend to make an horizontal shift to a lesser evil. Make an horizontal shift to a lesser evil. Okay, so I've been desiring the world in this way, fill in the blank. So now I'm just going to back off a little bit and pursue the world in this other way, fill in the blank. That'll be okay to ease my conscience. Well, no. That is just a cycle of misery. That's a wasted endeavor. You will go back to the other attempts to make things right. The fourth thing, we just prove to ourselves how bad the desire is. We prove to ourselves how bad the desire is. If I could just force myself to see how ugly this thing is, then I wouldn't do it. No, you'll likely go back to number three and find a lesser evil if there is such a thing. Now, this morning you've heard a lot of Thomas Chalmers. um, I'm unapologetically referencing him this morning in hopes that we will take up and read the wisdom that the Lord granted him in this area of not loving the world. Sometimes the best things in life may not be free, but sometimes they're cheap and sometimes free. So if you go to Amazon, you can get a Kindle edition for 99 cents. If you just Google uh, Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, you can pull up a free PDF. I just encourage you, even this week, most of us have an extra day off. Spend some time reading this. But here's what he offers us in this vein. It is not enough then that we dissipate the charm by a moral, eloquent, and affecting exposure of its deception. We must address to the eye of the mind another object. Another object, yes, but with a charm powerful enough to dispossess the first of its influences and to engage ourselves in the completeness of interest, hope, and activity. In other words, he goes on to say, it is quite in vain to think of stopping one of these pursuits in any way else but by stimulating it to another. And the only way to deal with that problem of loving the world and finding the right thing to replace it with is to love that which is supreme. That's to love Jesus with every fiber of our existence. So yes, the Proverbs are right. We must guard our heart. We must guide our heart. We must avoid the traps of the world and run to Jesus who truly is our refuge. And he is the only satisfying object of our affections and our longings. And that means we stop with these false movements that get us nowhere that keep us spinning our wheels. Here's what it does. It moves us in the right directions, which the first of those directions is down to our knees. We cry out for forgiveness. Cry out for understanding. We labor in prayer knowing, yes, a gracious God, our gracious God stands ready to pour out his grace that we might keep him supreme in our hearts And in all of our earthly affairs, we move down to our knees. We humble ourselves. But then we move forward. We move forward in his forgiveness, in his restoration to pursue him. Where do we do that? We do it everywhere. When do we do that? At all times. In what? In all things. Why do you parent? 
Why do you parent? What is your supreme motivation in raising children? It should be because Jesus demands and deserves the place of praise in your parenting. Why do you work? It's because Jesus is to be delighted in it and not grumbled at in every task. Why that new promotion? To make much of Jesus with your life and stuff. Perhaps to give your family a larger home, a larger space in which to show Christian hospitality. Nothing wrong with that. Make sure it's to get more of Jesus. Why do you pursue any hobby? Is it to celebrate Jesus as the designer of such appropriate pleasures? Why that new toy, that new device, that new whatever? Is it to get more of Jesus? To be better resourced? To help others know his unfathomable love? If we pursue anything appropriate in this world, it must be because we want more of Jesus. We want him to be magnified. And the question is, how does this brand of pursuit become part of our lives? Well, it starts with being intentional with the gospel. Guess what? It continues with being intentional with the gospel. And guess what? It ends with being intentional with the gospel. Earlier this month, we held a seminar on looking to Jesus and the battle against lust. In the first session, we defined the heart and how it operates. The second section, we aimed to highlight the complexities of the heart and all these lust issues. In the third section, we learn how to correct the heart by aiming for pure worship. And it was in that third section that we heard this counsel from Pastor Greg, these very practical points that are very helpful to us even today. Number one, memorize, meditate on the gospel. Sing the gospel, number two. Number three, read the gospel. In other words, soak in the gospel narrative. Read helpful books that spur you to deeper love for Jesus. So we memorize, we meditate on the gospel. We sing the gospel. Speaking of singing the gospel, did you know that through our app, you can subscribe to a Thursday thread that is sent out in which all the songs, typically, all the songs we do on a Sunday morning are given to you so that you can listen to them and prepare your heart? Did you know that? Sing the gospel. Get ready for Sunday morning. Read the gospel. Discuss the gospel. Talk to other saints about the riches of Christ. We're about to kick off in June a church-wide one-to-one Bible reading initiative. Don't miss that. Discuss it with other believers. Share the gospel is the last one. Take the gospel beyond the walls of this building and the walls of your home. If we are not going to love the world, then we, we must get busy at pursuing gospel-shaped lives. We simply don't have time to entertain two masters. We need to get serious about Jesus, who must be eternally the supreme object of our affection. 1 John 2, 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't give your life to a wasted endeavor. Give all you have. 
Give all you have to an invaluable pursuit of the Lord Jesus. Earlier, I posed a question to you. You wrote down an answer. In your pursuit to love Jesus more, what worldly thing tends to get the upper hand? Can we just get serious about that thing right now? Can we just take it out of the abstract, bring it down, and do something with it? We need to move in the right direction. We need to move down to our knees. We need to pray and surrender that thing to the mercy of Christ. What needs to be done to eliminate that second master if it exists in your life? Christ stands with kindness, comfort, hope, and help. So I want us to think deeply in the next few moments about what we will do, not what we should do. What are we going to do to pursue Jesus with all we are? Who do we need to reach out to for assistance in this fight? So after we pray, and as we go into a time of silent reflection, let us even right now or let us begin or continue pursuing a gospel-shaped life, whatever that thing is that you wrote down, let's get serious about it. Perhaps it really is a wasted endeavor, keeping you from an invaluable, valuable pursuit of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the few moments we've had together this morning. We ask that you would help us see much more clearly than we have how beautiful Christ is. How unfathomable his love is. Could it be, Father, that We are entangled in the things of this world. Again, not speaking to those responsibilities, appropriate pleasures, any of that. Father, is there something off in our pursuit of Jesus? We don't have time to play games with Christianity. We don't have time to pursue the world before we get serious about pursuing the Lord Jesus. So, Father, we ask, even right now in the next few moments, you would move us to cast off that which is hindering us from this wonderful pursuit of pure worship, of the name above all names. Help us cast off whatever that is and help us run to Jesus. Let us begin today a path of pure allegiance to his glory. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.